It's an exciting chapel for me today because in the 11 years that I've been here working with chapel, uh, we have never had a guest that utilizes multimedia the way that our guest today does. Um, we actually, Jared Slack, who works with me, you've met him many times, you're on the stage, he went up to a conference last semester in Chicago, and it was called the Story Conference, and it was about narrative. And, and he saw our guest today, and he came back, and he said, we got to invite this guy. So we get on the email, and we send the invitation, and he writes us back and says, I would love to come back to Baylor. And I'm like, come back to Baylor? Have you been to Baylor before? And he's like, yeah, I went to Baylor. Um, had no idea. So we actually invited this guy, not because of his Baylor ties, but because he's really among the best in his field. Um, he also happens to have sat where you're sitting in 2003 and 2002, yeah, 2002 and three um, in Baylor Chapel. So he knows uh, what you're experiencing today. Um, I do want to share with you that uh, sometimes we invite guests who just illustrate the creativity of God. And today is no exception to that. Um, Seth Worley is our guest today. And if you're any film and digital media majors in the room right now. Awesome. There are several of you. Um, I think today will especially appeal to you, but I do want those of you um, who are not FDM majors to know that what you're going to hear today is what I consider the perfect illustration of the creativity of God. Somebody who says, I love Jesus. I want to magnify and move along the kingdom of God with my life. But at the same time, I want to do that by being the best at my craft. And so, with that in mind, I want you to hear a little bit about the craft of filmmaking. Seth lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife and two kids, and he is here in Waco today, away from his family, just to speak to us. So will you uh, pay close attention and welcome to the stage, Seth Worley. <laughs> hey, everybody. Um, I am, oh, look, I'm at the end of my slideshow, so hold on one second, I'm going to go back to the beginning. Pretend I'm not here. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Seth Worley. Uh, uh, that's all, thank you, have a good day. No, sorry, I just blanked all of a sudden. Um, thank you guys for being here this morning, uh, voluntarily, obviously you didn't have to be here, and uh, I appreciate it. There's the laughs, the awkward laughs, I promise I'm going to get funnier now. The, um... It, it, like he was saying, I, I was a student here from 2002 to 2003, so it's an honor to be here. Um, not just for that reason, but because my parents went to Baylor. Also, my grandparents went to Baylor. Their parents, their parents, their parents. Um, just lineage of Baylor in my blood. And uh, so this is kind of a big deal. And I think like half my family is actually here, um, which is really cool, which is really more why I'm uh, nervous and forgetting stuff. Uh, the other reason this is so funny and cool uh, is because I... Uh, <clears throat> dropped out of, of college, and um, so now I get to tell my, my kids when they get older, like, you will finish school, and if you don't, you will go back and speak at that school, which um, not many parents get the opportunity to lay those kind of unreasonable expectations on their children. Um, I, uh, I have an interesting job. I make videos for the internet, so it, it's a silly and laughable career um, that's made up and won't be legitimate for another several years, but I am... Um, it's a cool job. I work for a company right now called Red Giant. They make software uh, tools for filmmakers, like mainly visual effects tools and things, plugins for After Effects and Final Cut Pro, like Magic Bullet, Trap Code, uh, Null Light Factory, Pluralize, stuff that if you're in film or digital media, you might be familiar with. My job is to make short films that showcase their products, that show what their products can do. So literally, my job is just to make movies um, uh, for, in, for the internet. Uh, and it's 
uh, really fun job. Before that, I was at Lifeway uh, Christian Resources, where um, some of you may have seen my work if you ever went to or worked at Fuge camps or Centricate camps. Um, uh, you saw a whole lot of my work and the team that I worked with there. Um, but the big reason that I'm really here that has, gives me any kind of legitimacy is this movie called Plot Device uh, that I made uh, a, few, uh, a few years ago. I made it for Red Giant. It was to showcase one of their products. Um, and it, it got a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people watched it. A whole lot more people watched it than have watched other films that I've made. Um, and uh, it's about a kid, played by my little brother Ben, uh, who orders this device he finds on Amazon that when activated, um, here, I'll just take a look. pretty much like, you know, a Pepsi filmmaker short. Um, like, every time he presses this button, the front yard is transformed into a brand new film genre. Um, it was a showcase of a product called Magic Bullet Looks, which is a color correction um, suite that allows you to add different color looks and um, color filters to uh, your videos and films to look, you know, to give it a certain look or feel. Um, and so we created this whole construct of the short around that with different genres and different color looks. Um, I'll get more into it later, but like, um, we shot at my parents' front yard, and that's, like I said, that's my little brother Ben, right there, playing the main character. He also did the music for it. Um, uh, I want to show you a clip from later in the film where he finds himself in the middle of the uh, blockbuster Michael Bay sci-fi genre. the most amount of things that's happened in my front yard ever. Um, I, uh, I showed that clip to my mom, you know, because it was like uh, when we were working on it, it was uh, when we, my mom and I were working on it. And when I was working on it, I showed it to my mom and I was like, you know, this is, you know, mom's most visual effects I've done ever on like blowing up our, our yard. Like, and I showed it to her and she looks up and she goes, wow, isn't Ben amazing? I was like, 
nah, you know he's not actually doing that. Like, it's, and uh, it's a problem that, like, you know, it happens all the time in movies. Like, you watch a movie and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a guy with tentacles coming out of his face. Like, that's a totally normal thing that I see all the time. And you don't even think about the fact that there's a dude under there with no tentacles out of his face um, giving a performance, and the rest of it is digitally created. People just don't know what to be impressed by because we assume there's some button that makes tentacles come out of people's faces, and it's not a very difficult or expensive thing. Um, but there's this other world now called the Internet that um, for the, uh, these visual effects tools are much easier to access nowadays. And so, like, people are able to make these amazing things and put them on the Internet and impress people a lot more easily because when you see this stuff on the internet, you think you assume this person had no budget and very limited resources, and so their exp your expectations are significantly lower. And so it's a great time to be an amateur because you still get to impress people. You still have that capability. Um, uh, my favorite movie uh, is this big, beautiful masterpiece, uh, Jurassic Park. Thank you, yes. I know he said don't be rowdy, but if we're talking about Jurassic Park, you can be as rowdy as you want. Um, this was a pivotal event in my life. It came out in 1993, a, uh, a week after I was baptized, actually. So God clearly put this into the world to go into my eyes to lead me down this uh, career path. Uh, I saw it with my dad, having seen no marketing for the film. And so, I, like, I walked out of there like, dinosaurs! And, like, my first instinct was, I want to be Jeff Goldblum when I grow up. And then, after that, I realized, you know, filmmaking. And I got there by, because when I walked out of the movie, I was like, how can I see this as many times as possible? And I got this a plan to take every family member I had one at a time. So, and only one at a time, they couldn't go in pairs. So that way I saw it as many times as possible. And I took family members I hadn't seen in years. Like, it was, it was genius. And I saw it, like, around the 13th time I realized I was watching the person I brought more than I was watching the movie. Um, and I was kind of taking credit for their entertainment experience they were having. Um, like, you should be grateful that I brought you to this and brought this to you. Um, <laughs> And I've kind of been chasing that feeling ever since. Um, it's known for its groundbreaking visual effects. Um, and they are groundbreaking. And what's amazing is how much they hold up, uh, even today. Uh, in a recent interview, Steven Spielberg was asked when he knew the visual effects were going to work. Uh, and check out his answer. When did you see the first shot that, where you got to relax and say, OK, this is going to work? How, how, how long into the production? About five months after I finished shooting the movie. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, that's how it usually works. <laughs> it's usually when, it's, when you're way past the point of no return. That's when it happens. I love that. Way past the point of no return, that's when you know it works. Um, those kind of projects, those are the ones that get me really excited. The terrifying, scary ones where you're, you're not 100% confident that what you're trying is going to work. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, we made a web series uh, called The Time Closet. We made it as a feature film several years ago, back my first year at Lifeway. Made this feature film called The Time Closet. And we ended up releasing it as a web series because it wasn't that great. And we realized that to make a feature film, we'd have to run around saying, hey, come watch our movie at this theater we booked. Come look at this thing we're really proud of. And I just wasn't that proud of it. Um, so if you cut it up into pieces and put it on the internet and just say, oh, hey, look at that. Let them find it on their own. You didn't, you didn't claim it was good. You just put it online. There's plenty of bad stuff on the internet. So, um, I'll tell you why it's not that great. Uh, but here's the trailer first, the best thing about the movie.
Who are you? I think I might have accidentally made a time machine. Make a time machine. I, I, accident! I don't know! It just worked! This is not your original time. Dude, seriously, you can't talk to anyone or say anything or, or do anything. The other me will walk in and, and he'll see me and the world will implode. Yes. Gil. I don't know. I just made a time machine. I didn't make time. I don't know what makes the universe explode. Be careful. I will. You have to dig a hole and live in it. No, you know what? Don't dig a hole. You'll kill a worm, and that'll cause an earthquake in Zimbabwe. I this is the Ashton Kutcher effect. If you drop a coin on Tuesday, you got a beard by Sunday. So, that trailer's the best thing to come out of the movie. I'm going to talk to you this music now this way. Damn. I've now done this. This is on the internet, too, of me doing this now. Um, uh, pretend that didn't happen. Uh, this is what this movie is based on. It's a short film we did years before the, we made the feature film uh, called The Time Closet. Same actors. It was about five minutes long. And the concept was uh, a much simpler concept. was just that this, kid, this guy is house-sitting and this kid falls out of this closet. And it turns out this kid lives in this house sometime in the future and made his closet into a time machine and accidentally sent him back to this time. And he doesn't know how it works. And he chases the kid back into the closet. And every time they shut the door, it sends them a minute into the past. And then they keep trying to fix it, and it sends them a minute into the past. So it keeps multiplying them and this guy. And so what was cool about it was that, I mean, we shot it on, like, in standard definition, like, just disgusting. We didn't light it. Um, but we did all these visual effects in camera. The multiplying of the characters, um, we didn't do in, in the computer at all. We did by just having Tyler, the main character. He's right here in a green shirt. And we film him go, look over here and go, oh, no. And we whip pan this way, and we cut on the whip pan. He goes, takes his green shirt off, puts the brown shirt on, comes stand right here, and then we swing around and I start recording here, so it comes in right here and he's like, here I am! And so the shot looks like, oh no, here I am! And it looks seamless. And it, was, it ended up working great. And uh, while we were doing it, we had no idea if it was gonna work. And that was the exciting part of it. So when we got to do the feature film in the web series, it, the love was gone. We had done it before, we knew it was gonna work, so we kind of skimmed through that stuff and it wasn't as special. Um, and it just kind of took a lot of the joy out of the project. Um, so it brings me to like audacity is a word I like to use a lot. This willingness to take bold risks that keeps projects exciting. And really it's just challenging yourself. I think if you don't challenge yourself on every project, you're not going to have any fun. It's very important that you have something that's making the project fun because the process itself is going to provide its own challenges, the kind that aren't fun. Um, we call it resistance. And what is resistance? Resistance is stuff like rain. Every project, almost every project I've worked on, every good movie I've worked on, has had nothing but rain the entire time. So when it doesn't rain, I know the movie's doomed. Um, props that break. 
Like, my brother and I have a reputation of breaking every cool prop we've ever had, like on the first day of shooting. We had this one in the recent short we did, this really cool gun prop. It was like a sci-fi gun that lit up from the inside. It doesn't light up anymore, and it doesn't light up in the film because I dropped it right before we started shooting. I blame it on Ben, so Ben's really the one with the reputation. The, uh, you'll have radioactive ooze on every film that is made from highlighter fluid that's a prop that's going to glow. It's a common thing. And uh, you drop it the day, the, the, right before your first take, so it never ends up in the film. That stuff was really cool, no joke. Um, you have actors who get motion sickness when they have to be on dirt roads, bumpy dirt roads, and you're shooting in Hawaii where all of your locations are accessed by bumpy dirt roads, so he has to be on Bonine and Xanax the entire time, and so he is literally high the entire time you're shooting. And so you say cut, and he's like, what's over here? I'm going to wander over here. And, and there's like a giant jagged cliff right here. And so your job as a director then becomes not only directing him, but keeping him from dying. Um, which is very hard to keep up with, especially with Mitch. You also have actors that just get haircuts halfway through production, so this ends up happening. Like his hair came out of the time closet. The, um, like, pragmatism is a very key thing. You have the audacity, but then you bounce it with this pragmatism, this be, of being realistic. I'm a firm believer the best directors can take a problem and use it to make their movie better. Key example, that's cliche, everybody uses it. If I decide to shoot a movie entirely on the water with a huge mechanical shark, I'm an idiot with a death wish. But if I'm Steven Spielberg, I'm an idiot with a death wish making Jaws, uh, one of the greatest movies of all time. You have to have this crazy idea to have a shark that leaps onto a boat, audacity, just so that shark can then have a chance to break resistance, so then you can make the decision to replace it with barrels. It's pragmatism. And less shark ultimately means more barrels, more barrels ultimately means more mystery, and more mystery ultimately means better movie. We learn that all the time. Uh, when I was at Lifeway, I did a series called Adventure Now that played at Fuge Camps. Um, we did these narrative series that were the best part of my job. Um, and I'm not sure if going to camp, watching them, uh, if it was the same uh, joyful experience, but I know we had a lot of fun making them. The, um, for your staffer, though, you had to watch them every week over and over and over. So if, if you were a staffer hearing this, I do apologize. The, um, but what's cool, it was these narrative series that had basically existed to reinforce the Bible study theme. Um, there were five episodes, one for each day. Uh, each episode was about five to ten minutes long. And they were comedic in nature that would just, each day would illustrate some way, metaphorically or whatever, the um, Bible study theme of that day. Um, and we did this one called Adventure Now, and we actually got to do three years of it. So we literally got to do sequels um, in this trilogy. Um, Adventure Now 2, uh, we got to shoot all over New Mexico. It was actually a nightmare of a shoot but one of the most creatively rewarding and satisfying experiences of my life and for everybody involved. Um, like, it was beautiful on Tatooine there. Like, it's just gorgeous. And uh, I pointed a lot, because that's what directors do. Really what they're doing is saying, put the pizza right there. They're not really, or you make boxes. Like, I want the movie to be shaped like a box, is the other thing directors do. Um, the idea that played well, I'm not going to say that in the next one. The, um, uh, the thing about Adventure Not 2, one big problem we had was that the story revolved around these three guys, Walt, Pete, and Garrett, the chemistry of these guys. Walt, on the far right, was the leader. He's Luke Skywalker. He's the bland character because he's the idealistic leader. Then you have your two really funny guys, your straight man and your goofy guy. Garrett was the straight man, the one with the arrow. Uh, and then Pete, all the way to the left, was the, the goofy guy. Um, he's wearing a spacesuit. The um, thing is that Garrett, the second year, worked for Vanderbilt football. And uh, he was not sure if he was going to be able to go to New Mexico with us. He assured us, look, if, as long as Vandy doesn't go to a bowl game, I'll be able to go to New Mexico. We're like, great, it's Vandy. What's going to happen there? Well, 
That was the first year in decades that Vanderbilt went to a bowl game. It was a really big deal. So suddenly we're like, crap, we're not going to have Garrett. Like, how, that means Walt's going to have to have, it's, it, it's very complicated. Walt's going to then have to have the, sarca like the sarcasm. And, but when you write Walt with sarcasm, you don't like him. He's just mean. He's like, leave me alone. I'm trying to lead us. And it just doesn't work. So I was trying to figure out, you know, how can we solve this chemistry problem there? And I literally thought, what's the stupidest thing I could do to solve this problem? And this is what we came up with. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, who are y'all talking to? Oh, we're talking to uh, Walt's jacket. Your what? We're talking to Walt's jacket. You kind of have to be here to understand it. it I doubt that's true. It is true, Garrett. Will you please stop arguing with me? You Our trip kind of started off weird because Garrett found out at the last minute he couldn't come. That he had to go to summer school instead. No, Pete, I think you're the idiot. Because I'm not talking to a jacket, Pete. You know what? Why don't you just go jump off a cliff? What, what, do they, what do they call those there? Mesas? Go jump off a mesa. It was too early to judge its success. Hey, Walt. This ended up being, we literally took a cell phone and taped it to a cardboard cutout of the guy. Like, the stupidest solution to the problem ever. And it was the best thing we could have ever done. Like, it, was, it opened up so many comedy uh, doors. Like, later on in the series, they're, they're getting shot at um, by these robotic turret machine guns. It gets really ridiculous. And, like, they're screaming, and it's coming through on the, other, on the line, on the phone of Garrett. So all of the classmates are turning and looking at him, and he's hiding, he's trying to hide his phone, and there's gunfire, and he's like, it's not what it sounds like. And then you hear Pete yell, we're getting shot at! Like, it was, it was awesome. And he loses, the cardboard cutout loses its head, like in the third episode. Um, it was awesome. Um, so that's one solution. Another example, in Adventure Now 3, we got to uh, shoot in Hawaii. Totally ridiculous that we got to shoot in Hawaii. Nobody got paid. We put all of our money in the location just because we all wanted to go to Hawaii and rip off Lost for a week, and we got to do it. Um, the last day, we were scheduled to shoot at a waterfall. Um, here's the scene. being pretty cool. Well, this was the location we had picked in Hawaii. Um, it has, actually has a, 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 like a, a rope swing right there. Like, when we were there, there were people in the middle of the day, like, you know, hanging around, jumping off the waterfall, carefree life. And we were like, this is perfect. We'll come shoot this here. Well, the night before the shoot, the very last night we were there, uh, turned into, it, like, there was a tropical storm that came through and turned that waterfall into a maelstrom, just like the entire ocean shooting out of that thing. And it was completely unsafe to shoot on. And we had to fly home that night. So we were like, well, how are we going to, we totally couldn't get this scene. So we had to get creative, and here's what we did. This is how lame we are. This is the, the, the part of the movie of the episode where Walt jumps off a cliff. And basically, it's going to be, uh, Walt is Mitch, or Mitch running through Hawaii. Suddenly, he stops on a roof in the middle of Nashville with two paper trees in the background. He decides, I'm going to jump. Gonna and then he jump. jumps and becomes Jeff. And falls into the in, in Tennessee, falls into the water, and then emerges Mitch again back in Hawaii.
two banana trees. <laughs> Turn it off. I don't want him to yeah. So, those paper trees were like from a vacation Bible school from like years ago down in the basement at Lifeway. We were just like, okay, there's an open sky, but we need something. And we were like, and we turned and there's like these paper trees and like an like inflatable monkey. And we're like, yeah, that's it. Leave the monkey though. Um, and, uh, I mean, and what's funny is, you're, if you worked at Lifeway, you would look out the window and see these dudes with two paper trees and a guy with like bloody makeup on running and stopping and over, it was the stupidest thing ever. And you see this in movies all the time, like you'll watch like Star Trek, there's this whole, the whole opening sequence with young Kirk when he's st- stealing, he stole his dad's car and he's driving, a, uh, you know, drives it off a cliff or whatever, all those close-ups of him, he's in the Paramount parking lot. And it kind of totally changes perspective when you think like, we're in the desert, we're in a parking lot, we're in the desert, just shot to shot. And that's just the magic of movies, um, which uh, is the most pretentious thing I will say all day. The magic of cinema. The, <laughs> use what you have in front of you. And that's the, thing, that's the thing about filmmaking. You get as ambitious as you possibly can, but you make it within, but you try to achieve that within your means. You be realistic about it. And we do that as kids. When I was a kid, I had an eight millimeter video camera. And it made terrible digital text. I made, so I made Earthquake 3 with it. And that was a sequel to movies that didn't, there were no Earthquake 1 or 2. Um, I didn't do anything. Those are my little brothers. You might think that's a U.S. Marshal and an escaped convict that happened upon a tectonic uh, phenomenon in the midst of their fugitive ripoff. But no. Um, I also had child labor in my little brothers. And my little brother's friends who would participate in elaborate fight scenes for me. Uh, because they had to, because I was older than them. I also had toy cars and start-stop button on the big on my camera that could record one frame at a time, so therefore could do stop-motion animation. And I had a flashlight to shine on my face to fool you into thinking I was actually driving that little car. See, look, oh my god, I just crashed. Um, I also had clips of Tommy Lee Jones acting in other films that I could seamlessly integrate into my own films. really my finest work. He was really easy to work with. The, um, he was in a TV. Uh, okay, Bullet Through a Computer. We did this in a film, uh, just, just, just went online about a month ago, called Tempo. Um, and in this shot, it's repeating over and over, the movie's more than this, this is just one part. Um, uh, we had a, wanted a bullet to go through a computer screen, and you find out it went through her shoulder as well. It's a very powerful bullet. And, uh, as you see, there's like this, you know, burst of de- kind of powder, debris, or something that happens, of glass, um, and there's a hole in the computer. I wanted to do it as practically as possible to make it convincing, because it's, it's an important moment in the film. So I had this old power book, so we drilled a hole into it. It's always fun. It's point of no return. And then we took some sweet and low that we had available. We used that because no one uses sweet and low. We let the Splenda and the equal to use. Set it down there, gave her a compressed air, and she shot it off when she needed to and acted to it. So that's what you see right there. Um, uh, a really even better example of working within your means and knowing what you have to work with is my little brother. When he, uh, when he was 16, he composed the score for Adventure Now 2. Um, and this is him doing that. He got his band buddies in a room, had them all spread out, and he had them close their eyes, and he walked around, and when he tapped them, they were to play one or two sinister notes. And so, this is what it was like. Yeah. He called it Orchestra of Death. And he took that. Hold on. Alright, so when he took that, he mixed it all together, and this is what you've got. 
frisbee just flew past us. What was it, Pete? A metal frisbee? That knows how to think? Electricity? Yes, or magic, or Merlin's staff! Oh! Pete, it's coming back again! What? Walt, get me out of this minefield! So, the music is the best part of that thing. Like, the best. My brother clearly illustrates. He was 16 years old, and he set out to make a real film score. And the thing is awesome. And everything he's made since has totally upstaged me, obviously, especially in the eyes of my mother. And um, <laughs> she's watching this live. She's going to kill me. Um, she's a wonderful mother, actually. She's, it's, she's provided me the best jokes. You, the best way to stand out in the amateur world is to pretend you don't know you're amateur. Um, like, limitations and boundaries, they force you to work with what you've got. So like that winning recipe in creativity is to take that pragmatism and audacity and letting them dance, a constant conversation between the two of them. It's dreaming elaborately while working within your means. And then, very important is remembering that it's not going to be perfect. A lot of people worry about lack of professionalism shining through in their projects, and a lot of filmmakers focus just on this part of making it perfect, making the focus exactly right, the lighting exactly right, continuity exactly right. Clearly, I don't worry about that. Um, clearly not enough, uh, because like here's the time closet. They're running up the steps, they're running over here, and, but oh, wait a minute, let's back this up. I don't know if it's normal for like a 20-something dude just to have airy lights just hanging out on stands in his room. Like, I don't think that's how one would choose to light the, their room. But it's clear as day right there. But I chose that take because I like that take better, and even though the light was in there. Or in plot device, all of our gear suddenly just appears in the front lawn. Like, that's all of our stuff right there. And then, by the way, not to mention, if you go back, there's a car back there parked in the, in, the, in the backyard for no reason that was just a crew car. Just remember, it's, like, okay to be amateur. Like, to let people see what you have to work with, it gives you a better chance of impressing them. Um, and just remember, that, like, you know, I try to remind myself that one day I will be professional. One day I won't be an amateur anymore, and I'll be able to make beautiful stuff like this. In my mind, perfect stuff like this. Except, the thing is, in this shot, there's a light on a stand there too, like right there. And there's also like a safety cable keeping the car from going over and there's a reflector board against the concrete wall. And that potted plant that's in that pot there, like that's not local Costa Rican flora. I'm almost certain. So I don't know if that belongs there. There's also like, there's also a creeper in light jeans like wandering around John Hammond's bedroom right down there. And it's not Jeff Goldblum because he's wearing leather pants and I know because I tried to buy them when the movie came out. And, like, also, there's this dude that's inappropriately touching that rafter right there with his hand. Like, like even if he's supposed to be there, that's really dangerous, and that you don't believe that would happen. And then, I, I think, I'm pretty sure that's Steven Spielberg in the reflection right there in The Lost World, like, hanging out with Jeff Goldblum and Julianne Moore. Like, uh, he's not in the rest of the scene. Like, where did he go? Um, and then this last shot of Jurassic Park, where there are characters in the helicopter that have clearly died in the movie. Um, and there's a hare trapped in the gate, like right there, like a giant hare. I guess it's no big deal, even though it's the last shot of the movie, and Steven Spielberg's name is over it, taking credit for the hare. You know, so the point is, maybe hope, hopefully one day we will all be professionals, including Mr. Spielberg himself. Um, 
In the meantime, we should cut ourselves some slack and focus on constantly challenging ourselves and doing stuff that we think is really cool. Because in my opinion, that is what will glorify God and what will connect with people uh, the most. So thank you guys for your time. Um, so if you'll stand now for the benediction, I'll lead us uh, in a quick prayer. Um, God, thank you very much for this opportunity for me to come and talk to everybody here. Um, I pray that uh, everybody out here that this applies in some way, even if they're not a film major or anything of the like, even if they're not creative or artists, that they'll see that there's great benefit in being bold and audacious uh, uh, in everything that we do uh, and doing it in a way that glorifies you, that uh, fully exemplifies all the gifts you've given us and the abilities you've given us, um, because that glorify you. And um, I just pray that uh, you'll be with us the rest of the day. And uh, you name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.